This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. After teacher strikes and sit-ins, teacher compensation is rising to the highest level on the national education agenda. Democratic candidates for president are promising to raise teacher pay in their effort to secure the support of the unions and the teachers themselves. Both Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders want to raise teacher pay to a minimum of $60,000 a year. Senator Elizabeth Warren proposes to spend $800 billion to close what she calls the education pay gap. Mayor Pete Buttigieg insists on paying teachers like doctors. So how much should teachers be paid and just how should they be paid? A newly formed research and policy team at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University has just released a report entitled The Unavoidable, Tomorrow's Teacher Compensation. Well, transparency rules require that I tell you that I'm one of the members of this Hoover team, but the report has been prepared by another team member, Eric Hanushek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor at Stanford University. To his friends, Eric Hanushek is known as Rick, and I'm delighted to have Rick Hanushek with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me. Paul, it's always good to be with you. So, Rick, uh, why is this report entitled The Unavoidable? What do you mean by that? I think that we've seen that we cannot get around making decisions about how we pay teachers and how much we pay them. This is going to be a constant battle in the future, and we've got to get it right because it is, in fact, the thing that will determine the quality of our education in the future. Well, I want to ask a, a very important question because I know many teachers out there uh, want an answer to this question. Does this report favor paying teachers more? It favors, on average, paying teachers more, but it doesn't favor paying all teachers more. What it really comes down to is that for the large number of our effective teachers, they should be paid more. But we shouldn't pay our ineffective teachers more because that will just perpetuate our current problems at a higher cost. Well, before we get into effective and ineffective teachers, can you give me just an overall sense of the trend in teacher compensation? The trend in teacher compensation has been stagnant. Um, and this links into some other work that I've done, some research work that tries to compare teacher pay with what they could earn outside. And it was done in a very unique situation where we actually have measures of the math and reading ability of teachers and their experience levels and gender. And we try to compare what a teacher earns teaching compared to what she would earn if she were in another occupation. Our answer is she's earning 22% less after you take into account how skillful she is as measured by these characteristics. So teachers are actually paid less than teachers would be paid if they were in another occupation that placed similar demands on their skill set. Exactly. So, so that sounds like teachers should definitely be paid more. now. Uh, when you when you do this uh, kind of an analysis, uh, do you take into account the fact that maybe the people who go into teaching may not be quite as talented as other people who look the same? That, can you be sure that you've got similar people? 
Well, we try to do that as best as possible, and that's been part of the controversy. There's actually a large literature trying to decide whether teachers are over or underpaid. And usually what it takes into account is just what degree level do they have and, and what experience or how old are they. What we've done is actually to measure their achievement in math and reading, which we take as general cognitive skills. And so what we're trying to do is hold constant general cognitive skills. Now, obviously, there's lots of other things that go into compensation, but we think that we've come closer to making uh, apples-to-apples comparisons. Well, are teachers paid less in the United States than in other countries uh, when you do this kind of analysis, or haven't you got that information on other countries? Uh, we do have that in, for other countries, and it turns out that uh, of the 30 countries that we can compare by recent OECD survey, the U.S. and Sweden are at the very bottom. Um, and then we get to the other end where uh, Greece is near the top, um, which we take it as something about their general uh, labor market in Greece. So um, how about some countries that we sort of know, like Germany or United Kingdom, large industrial countries that, uh, you know, that we compete with? Uh, how, how well are teachers paid? Germany yeah. and Finland are about 10% more teaching as opposed to being in other occupations. Yeah. Um, so that's I, a big difference from us because we're 20% less and they're 10% more. Teachers do bit 20% better, yeah. And, and, and we did, in this other work, that's not what we're talking about today, but in this other work, we find that it makes a difference, that you can trace through underpaying teachers to the quality of teachers that you get to the impact on students, so that it really does make a difference to have smarter teachers. Well, a lot of people say that the reason we're not paying teachers more is because we're putting so much money into the pension system and into medical benefits for teachers. Uh, so does your analysis take that into account, or does it, would it look better if we, if we looked at teacher compensation instead of teacher salaries? Teacher compensation in the U.S. will look a bit better. Uh, we did not take that into account because in this work we were comparing international cross-countries, and it's almost impossible to compare those things. Uh, but that would make teachers in the U.S. look better off. I don't think it closes a 22% gap at all. Well, maybe, um, but you could say that, you know, medical benefits are, are a big part of the story in the United States and in other countries they have a public health service, so that is, really doesn't get part of the teacher compensation package. Well, the comparisons we're making are to um, other occupations and other employees where there will be uh, medical insurance in most of these other places also. Yeah. So we're making those comparisons. The pensions in teaching are above those in other occupations, and that's part of the story we want to talk about is that it seems much better to try to move some of the current pension backloading of compensation into current salaries to try to attract um, a different group of people in. Well, that's, that's actually one of the questions that I had on my mind is, is are we paying teachers too much in the way of, of pension plans and maybe medical benefits? 
rather than paying it in, in the form of a salary, which, which for a lot of young teachers, they're never going to see these pension benefits because they're going to be leaving the field of education before they become eligible for any of the benefits whatsoever. That's precisely the case in that um, I think we would want to move toward a system that had smaller pensions and higher salaries uh, as opposed to our current system. Our current system uh, neglects the large numbers of teachers that are never vested, as you point out, that they leave the profession before they have any pension rights. So a lot of people out there are saying that there's a shortage of teachers now. Is that because of this 22% differential? Is that leading to a shortage of teachers or, or is there something else going on here? Well, like the compensation discussion, the shortage discussion is also confused by the way we do it. On average, we have a teacher in every classroom. We're, we're getting the right number of teachers there. When people talk about shortages, they say, well, that may be true, but we don't have enough highly qualified math and science teachers. We don't have enough special education teachers. We don't have enough language teachers. And when we say shortage, it means that we don't have quite the right mix of people that we want. Um, but that gets into the compensation issue when you speak about it as an overview that we have too few teachers, or if shortage means too few, which is not the case, so that if you wanted to deal with issues of not enough math and science teachers, it seems to the average economist that you would want to pay math and science teachers, potential math and science teachers more, people who have those skills. And if you raise everybody's salary, you either get very highly qualified physical education teachers that you're overpaying, or you uh, don't get enough math and science teachers. So if you view it all as just lifting the overall level, you end up with either not enough math and science teachers or way overpaying your physical education teachers. So there's two things here. You're saying don't put so much money into pensions. Secondly, make your pay more appropriate to where the shortages are out there, such as in math and science, special education, because if you don't pay people more in these fields where you really need them, then you're going to have to pay a lot of money to have people who really you don't need to pay any more money. So you, you want to target your resources so it'll be more, more efficient. So those are two big things there. But people talk a lot about disadvantaged students, the short, another shortage that's out there are, are schools where there are high concentrations of disadvantaged students. Is that another place where you would want to pay teachers uh, uh, higher salaries? Sure, but the thing I left out when we discussed shortages is that the real shortage in many cases is of highly effective teachers, high quality teachers. And that's um, a shortage that you would also want to deal with in terms of paying for high-quality teachers. Now, so how do you find out who is a highly effective teacher? I, I, they, they, it, how can anybody disagree with paying the effective teacher a higher salary? But the disagreement comes around when you say, who is the effective teacher? Isn't that just like uh, which flower is the prettiest? Well, let's look at it uh, in a broader sense. We have a very large economy here of which 
I would say roughly 80% of the people in the economy are in complicated jobs, but they're yet evaluated in terms of their performance. And uh, firms make decisions about whether the people are qualified or not. In the uh, number of people that are in public employment, we generally say, oh, well, we can't possibly judge quality in public employment, and that's the teacher situation. But in fact, we have methods of doing this. It's just that many people don't want to apply them and use them, and so they make all kinds of strange arguments to say that, well, we can't possibly judge the effectiveness of teachers. Every parent does. I mean, for heaven's sake, every parent makes those decisions regularly. Yeah, but one of the arguments that's made out there is that uh, students vary a lot in their ability. They vary a lot in their willingness to apply themselves inside the classroom. Why should the teacher be held accountable for how well the student does when there's all kinds of things that the teacher has no control over that affect how well that student does? So you're pushing us into uh, a more technical area of where the battle has been made publicly, but it's not the real battle in my opinion. The battle is should we use information about student performance in developing our evaluations of teachers? And there it's clear that you would not want to uh, reward the teacher on the basis of their um, SATs test or, or whatever, any common test that you have, because the teacher is not responsible for a significant portion of the difference in those tests. What you want to do is compensate teachers for what they contribute to the learning of students, which has become known as the value added of teachers. What do they add over and above parents and neighborhoods and, and friends and peers and so forth? But even there, we don't want to ever think about using just test scores to evaluate teachers. They're fairly narrow. We don't have that information on lots of teachers. Um, and we would want to bring in information of supervisor ratings. We would want to bring in perhaps information from surveys of parents and maybe even students to say something about the overall effectiveness of teachers. Well, I've been impressed with the system that they have developed in Washington, <clears throat> D.C. in this regard. They do pay teachers according to how effective the uh, school system thinks they are in the classroom. And one of the primary mechanisms they use is to bring in, I think it's five different people over the course of the term or course of the year, and uh, two or three are from the central office who look are specialized people. This is all they do is go in and evaluate teachers. And then they also use people who are like the principal and other people right within the school, and they do their own evaluations, and they take all of this uh, information together, and that becomes, along with test scores, uh, a way of assessing the overall uh, uh, evaluation of the teacher. And so is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Uh, do, do you like the system they've evolved in D.C.? I think that they have a very viable system in D.C. 
Um, various other places have experimented with it. Dallas, Texas is one that I know well and like a lot. But DC is a good system. And there is a good example um, where people argue, well, we can't do like Washington, DC and just use test scores. It turns out that only 20% of their teachers have any information about student test scores introduced into their evaluation. It's value-added information we talked about. But the fact is that many teachers are not teaching in subjects that are graded or, or grade levels that are where there are tests. And so they rely much more on external information um, and that seems to do a good job. Yes, well, I think somebody said that a teacher who's evaluated knows and then told what they're doing wrong, then knows what they can do to correct what they are expected to do. And so uh, if you just rely on test scores, it sometimes makes it very difficult for a teacher to say, okay, I know I'm supposed to raise these test scores, but I don't really know how, how to do anything better than what I'm, I'm currently doing. So, uh, yeah, they, uh, I think uh, probably most people now agree with you that if you don't have some kind of uh, evaluation system, you're not going to be able to identify effectiveness in a way that's going to be very useful. Well, I, I should add that all schools, for as long as I know, have actually evaluated teachers. Uh, it has two characteristics of those historic evaluations. One is that... 94.4% of their teachers are excellent, um, and that is uniformly the case. And part of the reason why that's uniformly the case is that these evaluations are never used for any personnel decisions. So if they're not going to be used, why would a principal ever potentially have the discord introduced from downgrading a teacher uh, when they can just give them high marks and say everybody's good. So is your overall argument in this report that, yes, we need to increase teacher salaries, and so therefore the legislature should be willing to cough up some more dough uh, at, at the state level or, or the district at the district level, they sh or the voters should be encouraged to raise their taxes. Uh, but if they're going to do that, they should use this as an opportunity to target that money on the teachers that can be most effective and the ones working in areas where they're most needed. Uh, that's, that's precisely the argument. What I call the grand bargain is that we have substantial increases in teacher salaries, but we tilt the salary schedule toward more effective teachers. And that that seems like a good answer and it's one that we get away from the current stagnant wages that we've had for teachers. The stagnant wages, I think, come, can be seen from some of the protests and strikes and so forth that you alluded to at the beginning. In all of those, take West Virginia, the first one, the rallying cry was, well, we have to have a 6% increase or an 8% increase, and it's what's the overall across-the-board increase that we should have for teachers. Well, the taxpayers are sitting there and saying, well, it's fine if we want to increase teacher salaries, but am I going to increase teacher salaries the same for the effective and the ineffective teachers? And so there's an immediate built-in resistance um, that comes from the fact that 
parents are actually pretty perceptive and tra taxpayers are perceptive that a quality teacher is really valuable and an ineffective teacher is not. Well, now, this all uh, sounds like the perfect policy, but is it possible politically? I noticed that none of the candidates running for president had proposed your plan. And I haven't even heard the Republicans out there. Uh, I don't see this part of a Trump administration plan, and I haven't heard any other Republicans out there talking about, yes, we've got to really uh, rejigger the way in which we, we pay teachers as, as we raise their salaries. They've been, in fact, going right along with cross-the-board salaries in order to settle strikes. So what is the, you know, is this a politically realistic policy idea? Well, it's not a politically realistic policy if you are a candidate that is trying to get the endorsement of one of our two teachers' unions because the teachers' unions historically have not argued in favor of this. In fact, what the teachers' unions have done over time is to argue, as they did in Chicago in the fall, that we should have more people in the schools, more nurses, more counselors, smaller class sizes. And um, doing that comes out of the same pot of money, personnel funds, that teacher salaries come out of. So that if you argue for more people, you're going to get smaller increases for any given amount of money in the personnel budget. And this is what has been our, a big part of what has happened over recent years is that um, the teacher negotiations, um, often led by the teachers' unions, have been such that they argue for more people and then, oh, we'd also like higher pay, but the higher pay is reduced by the fact that they're pushing for more people. So you're saying the unions are actually not fighting for higher salaries for teachers? Effectively, their, um, their actions have been to hold down teacher salaries and get to this stagnant point. They've done this by trying to convince the public that just paying more money is going to make a teacher in the classroom better. Um, and they've tried to do this by arguing that, well, we have to have more teachers, smaller classes. And they've pushed that theme to an extent that I think it has effectively led to this, what I call a bad equilibrium, the bad equilibrium of low teacher salaries and low effectiveness. So um, that's all very disturbing and probably even more disturbing is that the teacher unions fight very hard against any kind of evaluation of teachers, any kind of differentiated pay for teachers. But teachers themselves don't like that. I mean, if you can find tremendous opposition from teachers to, to merit pay plans. So why isn't it the case that the effective teachers say, yes, you're right, we should get paid more. I think there's a number that say that, but it's a, it is, in fact, a minority. But the voices of the teachers are the experienced teachers that have stayed past the first three, four, five years when we lose half of our prospective teachers in those first five years. And the voices you're hearing are of the teachers that have been around for a while, and then they like the idea that they just keep getting paid more regardless.
Well, you know, one thing that I've noticed in Washington, D.C., that uh, originally there was tremendous opposition to the merit pay plan that was put into place there. But today, that's a very popular plan because the teachers uh, uh, arrive on the scene. They, they feel that they're very effective. So they walk in expecting to be earning those high salaries that are now being offered to the highly the high-performing teachers. So if you could get over the transition period, you might get buy-in from the teachers. Well, that's that's true. And I think bringing up Washington is really good, Paul, because what we've seen is that the Washington, D.C. schools, in terms of achievement levels, have gone up since they've introduced uh, their what they call the impact program, which is teacher evaluation and pay and retention based upon effectiveness. We're also, if I circle back to a prior uh, question that we didn't really answer, what about the disadvantaged schools? There's a good example in Dallas, Texas, where they have instituted a very thoughtful evaluation system for both principals and for teachers, and then they determine pay entirely on the basis of that and not on the basis of experience and degree level, but in, in fact, effectiveness. What they did, they were worried about the fact that being in a really long-term disadvantaged, chronically disadvantaged school would in fact be disadvantageous to teachers that would hold down their evaluations. So one of the things they did was to institute a policy in their most disadvantaged schools in Dallas of <clears throat> looking at teachers' uh, performance in prior years and paying a bonus based upon the effectiveness of the teachers as rated by the performance system. So they gave something on the order of, I think it was $10,000 for the most effective category of teachers per year to be in the worst schools. They gave $7,500 to the next category down and 6000 to a, the middle category of teachers. What they found was that highly effective teachers would in fact take the money and go to the chronically disadvantaged schools. And then within two years, these worst schools in the city were approaching the city average in terms of performance so that you could use compensation and evaluation to staff the, uh, the worst schools or the most difficult to staff schools, and you could get the results. Well, that's an exciting development. It's going to be well worth watching as we go forward. And thank you very much, uh, uh, Rick, for uh, sharing this uh, information from your uh, policy report that's, that's just been released. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Eric Hanushek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and author of a new Hoover report entitled The Unavoidable, Tomorrow's Teacher Compensation. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.